Welcome to the Compliance Plus Ethics Equals Integrity podcast, featuring Barry Dunn healthcare practice group professionals and expert guests discussing their insights into contemporary as well as perennial healthcare regulatory, revenue integrity, general compliance, and risk management topics. I'm Regina Alexander, Barry Dunn's Director of Independent Review Organization Services. I'm joined for this episode by Barry Dunn Healthcare Practice Group Manager, Christina Senna. In this episode, we will discuss proactive compliance priorities and scalable revenue integrity tips targeted to smaller, resource-constrained home health and hospice agencies. Before we get into our discussion, a quick disclaimer. The content we discuss in this podcast is based on our professional experience advising healthcare providers, facilities, and other organizations engaging Barry Dunn for independent review organization, revenue integrity, government program compliance, and credentialing support services. While we may reference specific government programs, Medicare and Medicaid policies, and regulatory guidance, we do not speak for CMS, the HHS OCR, the HHS OIG, the DOJ, or any other government agency or contractor, nor do we have the authority to do so. Nothing in this podcast should be considered legal advice. Anyone seeking legal advice on the subjects we discuss should consult their own attorney. Thank you for taking the time to join the podcast, Christina. Before we jump into our discussion, would you share a bit about your professional background and specifically your experience in home health and hospice, both prior to joining Barry Dunn, as well as the type of work you do now? Thanks for having me, Regina. So as Regina indicated, I am a consulting manager with the healthcare practice group at Barry Dunn, and I've been with Barry Dunn for about a year. Before that, I've spent about 17 years of my career in healthcare, both 11 years as a chief financial officer for a home health and hospice agency here in the state of Vermont, as well as about six years with GE Healthcare IT and IDX Systems here in Vermont. As a CFO in a home health agency, I oversaw all aspects of the finance group, administrative support of our intake office, as well as information technology and facilities. I was also acting administrator in the absence of the executive director of our agency. And I also have my master's degree in accounting with a concentration in forensic accounting. I'm a certified revenue cycle representative, a certified healthcare financial professional with HFMA. And I also attended the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health Emerging Women Executives in Healthcare in 2019. This allowed me to collaborate with approximately 50 women from around the world regarding the future of healthcare. Thanks for sharing your impressive background, Christina. One thing we have in common, we both live in Vermont. So my experience working with Barry Dunn's home health and hospice clients has been solely through the compliance-focused lens, specifically our clients under corporate integrity agreements with the HHS OIG, and these clients have annual claims or arrangements reviews. A bit of background why I wanted to talk to you today, Christina. A July 2021 article in Home Healthcare News reported home health services providers had paid over $422 million since 2012 to settle False Claims Act allegations with the DOJ. In cases where the provider intends to remain in business, 
continue participating with government programs like Medicare and Medicaid, and there are no criminal allegations, let's think abuse, not purposeful fraud, part of the settlement agreement typically includes a CIA with a five-year term. Those are the clients I work with. A CIA will require the home health agency to implement a robust compliance program, adopt new policies and procedures, exclusion monitoring, provide staff fraud, waste, and abuse training, and more, plus submit implementation and annual reports to an HHS OIG monitor. The CIA, as I mentioned, may also require engaging an independent review organization to conduct those annual claims and or arrangements reviews. From my experience working with home health and hospice providers under CIA obligations, what I typically discover is the agency may not have had a robust compliance program or revenue integrity controls like internal reviews or audits, or maybe not had professional code or billers. In one case, the client I worked with had set up their electronic health record to drop codes to bills based on erroneous information about Medicaid code definitions. The difference between the correct and the incorrect code was literally less than $2, but over time, that error turned into real money. The lack of controls and investment in compliance, rather than an intent to defraud, is why a CIA was put in place with the recoupment, rather than excluding the client from Medicare. Given home health and hospice has proven to be a vulnerable sector of the healthcare industry with respect to fraud, waste, and abuse, government program integrity and enforcement activities will likely remain robust for the foreseeable future. The current HHS OIG work plan includes one home health item that has been open for several years. Home health compliance with Medicare requirements is the title. 14 audit reports have been released under this item with at least four more expected in 2022. This item was opened based on a calendar year 2014 CERT program audit asserting a 51% improper payment rate. Newer open HHS OIG work plan items focused on home health and hospice as of the date we record this podcast include an audit of home health services provided via telehealth per the CMS coronavirus PHE Medicare flexibilities, an evaluation of infection control practices implemented by home health and hospice agencies during the pandemic, as well as a nationwide study of the strategies home health and hospice agencies use to address the challenges presented by COVID-19, including how well their emergency preparedness plans served them during the pandemic. Christina, you and I have had some really good discussions recently about the panoply of regulatory compliance considerations many home health and hospice agencies work under. Putting aside those outrageous cases of outright fraud that grab headlines where there was obviously no intent to comply, I think our audience would be really interested in your insights into the challenges home health and hospice agencies with good intentions may have with respect to compliance and revenue integrity. Thanks, Regina. So in my experience, it's usually the little details which cause the largest headaches and the largest compliance risks for the agencies. And people need to remember with revenue integrity, it starts at the intake office for a home health agency. The home health agency's intake office collects all the initial data required for a home health agency to bill 
appropriately for Medicare and Medicaid services. One example is signatures. So the doctor's orders have to be signed and, or I should say the provider's orders since the changes in Medicare regulations, um, they have to be signed as well as we have to have a face-to-face documentation in order to bill for Medicare services and Medicaid in most states. So let's focus on the signature on that plan of care. Medicare does not allow rubber stamps unless the provider is disabled and can document that they meet the criteria as set forth by Medicare. You would not believe how many times (laughs) I've seen a rubber stamp on orders. Oh, no. And it's it's not okay. Um, And that it's the other thing with the signature, it must be legible or there has to be an attestation statement documenting that this is the physician's signature or the provider's signature. I have seen multiple times where a provider does not sign the same way every time they sign a document. Understandable, because they're busy people. They're trying to take care of the patients and focused on the care that the patient needs. So make sure you get documentation of every signature that provider uses. Um, That can cause problems when you have a medical review if you don't have that documentation. Also, you need to make sure they have their credentials are on there as well as their name and making sure they date their signatures. Mm. That's critical. Um, So then you can validate that you had it in time to bill. The other thing, as you mentioned in the horror stories, as I'm (laughs) going to call them that you said, um, is coding of visits, making sure you're coding your visits accurately and timely so that you get reimbursed properly by both Medicare and Medicaid and even commercial insurances. Another important point is accurate documentation of the visits to support the services you provided, which goes back to the coding. You want to make sure that your documentation supports that coding. So let's talk about clinical documentation and how important the accuracy of documenting is. That supports the coding that we just talked about. So one thing I mentioned to clinicians as I was reviewing some records is, did the skill walk out the door when you left? because Medicare requires you to have skilled services. So if I can provide that skill or that treatment to a patient or service to that patient as the chief financial officer, is it really a skilled service? Usually not, and nor would anyone want me to do that. Um, And the other thing, it goes back to training of your staff, of the requirements of Medicare uh, services. So Two things I would focus on is that skilled care documentation as well as homebound status. Anytime I look at homebound status and review notes and I see, well, they can't drive, so they're homebound. Nope, sorry, driving isn't a homebound reason. So the person has to have medically contraindicated reasons to not leave the home. Do they need the assistance of another person? Do they need assistance of a device? Is it a taxing effort for them to leave the home? You have to document that and make sure it's very clear in your documentation so that you can support your homebound status. A clinician can read homebound status based on diagnosis, what they're seeing in the home, and they can easily see that the person's homebound. But think about a chief financial officer reading that documentation and saying, are they really homebound? You know, I saw them at the voting booth. Is that okay? It absolutely is okay. People can leave their homes for short time periods and for haircuts, going to church, those type things. They're still homebound. 
but that is important to train your staff on. Christina, I really like how you describe your approach when you served as an agency CFO, asking questions to confirm staff understanding, providing that example is great. If, if you could do it as CFO, it's probably not a uh, clinically skilled service. The homebound status requirements are under Medicare, while relaxed under CMS pandemic-related flexibilities, have been a perennial focus of program integrity audits. So I'm glad you mentioned it. As an IRO, Barry Dunn has failed otherwise clinically and administratively well-documented Medicare home health claims for the patient not meeting that homebound criteria. Buried in an OASIS recertification for one patient claim we reviewed was a narrative from the nurse stating that the patient had been visiting his wife, who was in a nursing home, three days a week, as well as doing her laundry and going out to dinner with friends on the weekends. So now we've talked a little bit about home health. I'm going to pivot to focus on hospice because some of these um, home health agencies also provide hospice services. For hospice, the specificity and level of documentation required to support payment seems to also be a perennial challenge for providers, but especially those resource-constrained agencies we're focusing on. Maintaining revenue integrity in hospice is really all about the documentation as well, but the documentation supporting the terminal condition as well as the level of care provided. The Medicare Hospice Comprehensive Error Rate Testing, or CERT, results in 2021 suggested 7.8%, that's $1.7 billion, was paid improperly by Medicare for hospice services. The primary issue found in CERT audits was insufficient documentation supporting the terminal illness and a life expectancy of six months or less, as well as missing administrative requirements on the plan of care, such as the date span. Medicare administrative contractor targeted probe and educate those TPE reviews our clients love have tended to focus on documentation to support the level of care with a special focus on utilization of the general inpatient or GIP as well as long lengths of hospice stay. So Christina, how significant in your experience are factors like the size, rural versus urban, or not-for-profit versus for-profit status of the agency in the ability or even the will to invest resources in proactive compliance-related activities? So I think home health and hospice agencies are no different than any other organizations across the United States, it's doing more with less, which can have a significant impact on compliance. So I have found with smaller agencies, they don't necessarily have the resources to focus on compliance unless they're affiliated with a hospital or a larger organization that does have the compliance component built in. Um, however, Medicare is doing a great job of implementing more regulations to prevent fraud and abuse. They're being implemented implemented every day, which creates a significant amount of administrative burden on these agencies who may not have the staff to make sure they're in compliance every day. So in smaller organizations, as you can see by what I discussed as my experience, people wear many hats and play critical roles in their agency's compliance, whether compliance is not their main focus. So I think that's important to keep your eyes on. And then creating processes and checklists and consistency. So documenting consistently 
having kind of a checklist for your clinicians to utilize as far as Medicare homebound status? Did you include this? You know, did you include that they're only going out intermittently? Did you include that it's medically contraindicated that they leave their home? Those type of things. And then coming in the future, in the very near future for nursing and physical therapy is electronic visit verification. EVV. So that's coming into effect as of January 1st, 2023. And that will allow home health agencies, or I shouldn't say allow, it will make home health agencies include GPS coordinates on their claims when they submit them so that the fake visits will no longer occur. And there'll be documentation of where those visits will be or should not occur, I should say. Well, you know, we have fake, the fake visit in quotation marks, um, the EVV is one of those requirements um, that truly feels like um, the implementation date has been kicked down the road um, several times. Um, and some state Medicaid programs it did roll it out in 2018 and 2019 uh, for the um, home health aid uh, visits. But the technology challenges really did strain agencies of all sizes and types, in, in my experience with the folks I worked with. So... This, uh, this fake visit issue seems to be truly one of those requirements that's because of a few bad actors that um, really, really made it seem like something that needed to be done uh, for program integrity. And as much as I love telling compliance horror stories, as you said, I actually hate stories like this because it is, it is a burden. So while I'm sympathetic to the assertion that smaller nonprofit agencies um, that I hear and the lack of resources for compliance and working with these type of agencies or any other healthcare provider operating on a small scale for that matter, I always advise that they cannot afford not to invest in an appropriate scaled compliance program. Like you said, possibly folks wear multiple hats and that that program is tailored to the specific regulatory risks that they have to manage. Typically, smaller agencies will need to be creative, as you've mentioned, and distribute compliance and monitoring duties to a leader who also manages another function. Um, another option is uh, sometimes outsourcing or engaging an outside compliance expert to support um, audits, uh, policy and procedure maintenance, or investigations. That can be a good solution versus hiring a full-time in-house resource when those resources are needed intermittently. When it comes down to it, the main objective for any compliance program is to be effective and appropriately resourced. What that looks like will obviously differ from agency to agency in this case. So, Christina, what are the top three to five contemporary risks you would advise agency leaders to monitor, keeping in mind that resources are limited? Would you focus on Medicare conditions of payment? coding accuracy? Where would you focus your resources today? Definitely on coding accuracy. That would be probably the top priority for me as a CFO um, because it gives you the compliance perspective and it also impacts your revenue. So your financial side of things. So um, it's critical to the agency's financial well-being because A, you don't want to be paying a compliance penalty and it also impacts your revenue that you can recognize. The other pieces would be uh, definitely conditions of payment and conditions of participation. Those are important to make sure you're in compliance with. Uh, I would recommend that you focus on the tools that are provided to you by Medicare to see how your agency compares, because those would be the 
areas that you should focus on from a compliance perspective. So utilizing the PEPA report, utilizing the uh, HCAPs for home health, those are important to look at and compare yourself to other agencies your size so you can see where you differ and do you have a compliance risk in that area. The conditions of participation should always be front and center. And any educational opportunities that are provided by your MAC would be important for you also to take on and look at because that's where they're focusing on. I think you've nailed it, Christina, with the coding accuracy piece. On the home health side, once diagnosis code accuracy started to determine payment with, with respect to Medicare and PDGM, not paying attention to the specificity of code assignments became a potential overpayment and an underpayment risk. If we're really going to uh, do the revenue integrity thing, we have to be concerned about underpayments too. So while ensuring the primary diagnosis code on hospice claims accurately reflects the terminal illness and the secondary and tertiary codes are supportive with respect to under overpayment and underpayment risks on hospice sides of agency, the diagnosis coding accuracy isn't, isn't as critical as it's become on home health, but the hospice side has some other unique risks. Christina, you also hit upon a great resource with respect to the PEPPER. Also, the PEPPER applies to the hospice side. On the hospice side of the agency, the PEPPER report is truly that proverbial canary in a coal mine. The PEPPER can highlight where the agency may be an outlier compared to their peers with respect to areas that draw program integrity scrutiny, such as, are you an outlier as far as live discharges, utilization of the JIP and CHC level of care, which are the highest paying levels? Are you submitting claims with only one diagnosis code? These type of outliers are what can set you apart in a way that's not so great with respect to receiving audits and, and just that scrutiny that you want to avoid, especially if you're resource constrained. The PEPPER can provide a solid and, again, free basis for documenting a compliance risk assessment and providing support for where the agency should direct their limited resources. That scalable piece we emphasize in compliance program development. So, Christina, as we wrap up our conversation, what are the most important takeaways for our listeners who want to do more or just starting to develop their agency's compliance program? Because it's never too late to start. What resources should they rely upon? So agencies should look to the conditions of participation, the Medicare Claims Processing Manual, and the Medicare Program Integrity Manual for resources as to how to operate and be in compliance. So the Medicare Administrative Contractor or the MACs as we've been referring to them also have many quick reference guides for agencies to use as well as Medicare University offers great trainings. And then the MACs themselves will also offer periodic trainings that are great for you to refer to and get straight from the source. And best of all, th those trainings are free, right? They are free, yes, they are. We love the free. So I'd like to thank you, Christina, for sharing your insights with our listeners. We've reached the conclusion of our discussion for this episode. So on behalf of myself and Christina, we thank you for listening to this episode of Barry Dunn's Healthcare Insights, Compliance Plus Ethics Equals Integrity podcast. We welcome listener questions and feedback about the ideas we discussed in this episode as well as suggestions for topics we should consider developing for future episodes. Mm -hmm.